ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRP podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 and $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. I've pretty much avoided discussing Donald Trump, Russia, and the Russian investigation on this podcast. The drama and hyperbole of the headlines just isn't all that compelling for me. But one thing that does interest me is how Trump, Russiagate, and the American media's coverage of it is understood in Russia. I wasn't able to do a podcast on this subject, until I was sent an incredibly timely book, Russians on Trump, Press Coverage and Commentary, published by Eastview. Russians on Trump is a collection of Russian press articles on Donald Trump since the 1990s, his business dealings in Russia, his presidential campaign, his surprising victory, and his presidency. So, to get a better sense of how the Russian press makes sense of Trump, I turned to the book's editor, Lawrence Bogoslaw for some insight. Lawrence Bogoslaw has a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from the University of Michigan and directs the Translation Laboratory, a communication and consulting service that he co-founded in 1996. Since 2010, he has worked as an editor and translator at Eastview Information Services in Minneapolis. He also serves on the American Translators Association Certification Committee. He's the editor of Russians on Trump, Press Coverage and Commentary, published by Eastview. Here's Lawrence Bogoslaw. You have this really interesting book, an incredibly timely book, considering I think pretty much everyone's been wondering about the relationship between Russians and Trump and what do Russians think of Trump and what does Trump think, Donald Trump think of Russians. And you have this book, Russians on Trump, with it, which is a collection of Russian press coverage and commentary on Donald Trump since the 1990s, which is, I think, quite interesting. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about, you know, the, the reasoning for the book, the inspiration for it, and the process behind putting it together. Well, the, the inspiration, it, it comes as one of a series of uh, books that we, uh, that we had the idea of putting out based on a voluminous amount of information that is in the, uh, the current digest of the Russian press, which is a, a weekly publication that is put out by, uh, by Eastview, um, which is the same company with, uh, that Eastview Press is part of. And we have a, a close-knit team of translators and editors who put out the Russian Digest. And we, uh, we've been talking, you know, actually for a couple of years about, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great to leverage this material in, in certain ways? And so we tried this out uh, last year with the book on Syria, you know, because we had, we had so many features on Syria, starting with, uh, with the Russian involvement in the fall of 2015. Uh, and then after we got off uh, doing the Syria book, which came out last year, we talked and this uh, this conversation went up to the vice president of the company about 
all the Trump coverage we had been doing uh, since, since 2015. And he thought that was a great idea. And the, uh, the VP of the company actually got his hands into, uh, into our electronic database and you know, came up with hundreds of articles that, uh, that we'd published. And that's when we discovered that, that we actually, um, that our publication actually had been covering Trump off and on since the late 90s, uh, which, which was really fun. Uh, it wasn't just, uh, you know, he didn't just surface in 2015 when he announced his candidacy. So, uh, so then the problem was, of course, to go through all this material and divide it into thematic sections. And if I remember right, we had at least 20 or 30 of sections about Trump and North Korea, uh, Trump and Trump and Manafort, Trump and Ukraine. Uh, it just went all over the board. And so we thought rather than trying to have a table of contents that would be, you know, as, as long as a telephone book, um, we, we'd better we'd better organize it in, uh, into bigger um, historical and thematic sections. And, and how did you go about actually selecting the articles? Did you have to do a lot of, you know, did, of course you had in some areas, like for example, I would imagine in the section that is about the 2016 election, you have a lot of articles to pull from, whereas in other temp, the early period, maybe less so. So what was the selection process? What did you try to, what, how did you determine what to put in and what not to put in? Well, we wanted to have, first of all, a range of points of view, uh, because when we put together the Russian Digest each week, we find that on a given topic, you know, we always we always have at least um, at least two or three um, thematic sections called features, and, and we have a selector in Moscow who you know basically speed reads, um, you know, through a number of publications and uh, and picks out a range of material for us, and then we cut that down further. But on on every issue, there there's almost always a uh, a range of points of view going on, you know, from the pro Kremlin line to uh, to the right-wing line, to the left-leaning, Western-centric liberal line. So we wanted to, you know, as much as possible, we wanted to represent that, that gamut of points of view. Um, and one of the reasons for that was not only to be true to the material that we have, but also looking to the American audience, which uh, in this last couple of years especially, tends to essentialize what Russia is and what Russians think. Especially with uh, Putin being, you know, projecting such an authoritarian image, Americans who don't specialize in Russian studies, many of them think that everybody thinks the way Putin does; otherwise, they get thrown in jail. Uh, and and uh, and this is just not true. So that was that was a primary concern to represent different points of view. We tried to eliminate uh, redundancy. Uh, we couldn't do that completely, of course, because. You know, articles typically range over a number of issues, and they and they do overlap somewhat. And we also wanted to cut down the length of articles. Like if there was if there was if there was a very long article that that talked about Trump and five other topics, you know, we um, we would we would cut that article down to just uh, to just focus on the the pieces that were most relevant to Trump. And we have a, a few article, a few articles from thicker journals uh, that that we did that with. Um, but on the but on the other hand, we found that after we cut the material down, there was material that became relevant later on, after after the election, that uh, that we found. You know, guess what? We we didn't you know we didn't translate that. We didn't print that because because we didn't know it was going to be important. <laughs> 
Um, so especially there, there are at least two articles on, on Manafort, you know, that came out during the spring and summer of 2016, uh, that sort of, you know, went under the radar at the time, but, you know, but we went back and, and we translated those especially for this publication. Right. I can imagine the, the, the headline chasing in terms of assembling, <laughs> you know, assembling the, the volume, you know, you put it together, then who knows what happens since this is, seems to be the our condition of our life now. Something happens and then you have to like backtrack and try to include something that's relevant. Uh, it's, yes. a, it's an interesting dance, I would imagine. But I think yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. Dance. Yeah. It, but one of the things is interesting and that's what you, you said in, in terms of trying to show a diversity of opinion. And I think this is what's really important um, about the book in terms of what it reflects about uh, many things it reflects about Russia, but one in particular is is the diversity within the press and the diversity of views around Trump. So given that kind of di general diversity, what were some of the issues that the Russian, Russian press were interested in regarding Trump, you know, beginning in the 1990s and how did it develop over time? Well, first they were they were interested in him as the as this curious American figure. You know, they they wanted to know about you know where where he came from, what was the Trump phenomenon about. You know, so we have uh, we have an article uh, in the prologue, uh, you know, giving uh, you know uh, giving um, excerpts from uh, from the biography of Trump, and and the author had had obviously read uh, the the art of the deal and other and other articles like that. And was you know, fascinated in Trump's childhood and his father and his first forays into real estate. You know, this is when Russia was still, you know, getting its feet wet in capitalism after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, and so there was there was a lot of curiosity uh, about that. But in the in the two thousands, Russians as a whole were getting, I wouldn't say disillusioned with capitalism, but it was, but the but the problems of capitalism were starting to show themselves. In the unequal distribution of wealth, et cetera, and so uh, Trump was um, was quite busy during the the latter two thousands trying to sell real estate um, to to rush to rich Russians, you know that is trying to get them to invest in his American real estate, and he also bandied about some ideas about building Trump towers uh, on Russian territory and in uh, in Georgia as well, and you can see a kind of leeriness and skepticism. Uh, on on the on the part of the Russian press of, about this, you know, as 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 Russian, uh, you know, as the Russian post-Soviet um, government system gets a bit more mature, uh, and then of course uh, around 2013, the uh, the topic of the Miss Universe contest uh, comes up, and we were especially interested in this, um, not from the beauty pageant point of view, but from the personal contact point of view, uh, because of course this was the um, this is the, the first stage of a lasting friendship between uh, between Trump and, and the Agalarovs, uh, father and son. Uh, the father Aras, a, a, a construction guy and uh, and business magnate, and his son, the aspiring pop star Emin. When he starts running for president, what do they? How do they regard this move by him? I mean, here he is, this really flamboyant character in the 1990s. I'm sure he kind of symbolized to some extent you know, Western capitalism and it's a very, you know, extreme way. And then, in, as you say, in the 2000s, there's a little bit more hesitance and weariness of, of what this guy is. And so when he's, you know, now running for president of the United States, how does the press uh, understand what's going on? They're quite fascinated. Uh, and they're, 
Um, there's a lot of buzz, not for the same reasons that uh, that there is in America, and I'll get into that in a minute, but because they could tell right away this is this is a new breed of politician. Um, it's not it's not so unusual in the rest of the world, especially the post-Soviet world, to have to have somebody come in from business and go into politics. You know, everybody from you know from Pyotr Poroshenko in 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 Ukraine to uh, you know to other you know to other ex ex oligarchs in uh, in other post Soviet states it's uh, it's not so unusual in their part of the world for you know for for money and politics um, to mix this way but they know that uh, that America has has an establishment a political establishment which is not necessarily the same as the business establishment so they could um, they could sense right away that that this was a maverick and some people quickly drew parallels between uh, between him personality wise and Putin, even, you know, even though even though Putin did not start out as um, uh, as being from a rich family, but, you know, but became rich other ways. But you know, between the rich background and the and the sort of uh, outspoken quasi authoritarian personality, uh, they were quite fascinated, you know, both both in a positive and negative sense. But what what did not concern them was uh, was what the American press uh, was so up in arms about through 2015 and 2016, when leading up to the, you know, the discovery that Trump would be the presumptive candidate for the Republicans, we in America made a lot of um, sexual misconduct, um, some of which was quite well documented, sexual harassment against him and other Republican officials, the alternative facts, quote unquote, uh, presented during, during the debates, at the inauguration, the nationwide rallies in, in protest and um, and you know protests over over everything about Trump, you know, from his um, his refusal to disclose tax information to his unfair business dealings. You know, there was coverage of his real estate courses and uh, and implications that those were fraudulent. All of these things that impinged on on Trump's character and his qualifications for the office of president. None of that hardly made a ripple in in the Russian press. What what the Russian press was uh, was concerned about. Oh, and there was immigration policy too. Um, you know about you know building a wall with Mexico. You know almost almost none of that in the Russian press. So what did concern them was that his splashy personality, the possibility of of him and Putin forming a personal friendship, the extension of that you know being the possibility of. Of a of a new friendship between America and Russia that would that might you know permanently step outside the shadow of the Cold War, and and Russian experts, including Armen Agenisyan, you know, who works for the Foreign Ministry, um, started contemplating Trump as presidential material as early as 2015, you know, when the American press was still you know ooing an eye, gasping over over the fact that he was even in the the, the race against against established Republican candidates. So it, it sounds like to me is is that on the one hand, he's kind of a, you know, he's a flashy figure that they're trying to understand in terms of their own kind of flashy and uh, you know, masculine or whatever strongman figures in post-Soviet space uh, and or in Putin in particular. And then on the other hand, they're also contemplating, um, well, what what will this guy mean for us? And how does that how does that contrast with because in a lot of your articles, of course, during the um, the election, you get mention of Hillary Clinton as well. So, how did what did you glean about how the Russians regarded Clinton at the same time vis-a-vis -vis Trump? That is a very interesting question, 
as far as Clinton, the American press doesn't make much of the idea of a political dynasty in America, but uh, but but the Russian the Russian press uh, you know did and does you know it started when uh, when when George W. Bush was elected there was a Bush dynasty and then when then when Clinton I mean when Hillary Clinton rose to political power there you know there was the Clinton dynasty there's this whole story um, an, an ongoing sort uh, story thread of conversation in the Russian press about uh, the Washington establishment and and Clinton is the embodiment of of the Russian establishment and sort of taking taking off on on that idea of Hillary Clinton as a um, as a representative of that establishment there's a one columnist Dmitry Dravnitsky calls Clinton a soulless political machine um, <laughs> Another columnist, uh, Kirill Benediktov, you know, who, who actually wrote a whole book about Donald Trump, describes Clinton as 100% ideologically motivated, at, as opposed to Trump, who is a totally total political realist. So there's the um, there's this contrast between um, between Trump as a pragmatist, which is which in Russia is a very positive term to describe to describe a politician, as opposed to Clinton as being Kind of a, an ideological dictator, almost, you know, who wants to continue the American tradition of of spreading democracy all over the world, and this is part of this is part of a narrative that has gone on for decades, that Putin caused the collapse of the Soviet Union, the uh, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe, and people are still quoting that in the Russian press on a on a regular basis. So why was it a catastrophe? Because before there was some kind of parity. Uh, you know, ideological and military between the West and and the USSR, and then the West was suddenly the only superpower, and then it it uh, the West abused that power, started uh, started taking, um, uh, started importing democracy to Eastern Europe uh, in the late '80s and early '90s, and started encroaching on Russia's borders. The West also overthrew. Uh, overthrew governments in the Middle East, and so the um, the so-called Arab Spring, which the the Western press, at least in the early days, regarded as something very positive. You know, these these decades-long dictators are finally falling, and democracy is taking over. You know, the the Russians from the very beginning were skeptical of that, and just were disgusted at the presumptuousness of Washington um, to you know to think that that its brand of democracy could just be you know could just be implanted anywhere in the world. So Clinton Clinton represented like the embodiment of this idea from the Russians of what the American political foreign policy establishment has been since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they kind of so the question is is that in because there's a lot of debate here of course whether this uh what there was a personal dynamic in terms of Clinton's portrayal within the Russian press. Um, or it sounds like to me she's more of an archetype of something rather than it being personally about her. I think it's I, I think it's very very much as you say that she she represents, uh, you know, she she represents something larger than herself, and of course there is uh, there is the personal element too. You know she um, she made some some mean remarks about about Putin you know be, uh, while she was Secretary of State and uh, and during the campaign. Of course, the Kremlin didn't like that, 
there definitely was, and, um, and a couple of the articles talk about this, there was definitely an, an anti-Clinton bias, especially as, as the 2016 election drew near. You have a, a lot of articles, of course, uh, dealing with Trump through these various thematics, thematic topics. And so are there a few that stand out as particularly interesting or important for understanding how Russians understood or understand Trump or try to understand Trump? There's an interesting article by uh, by Vasily Gatov, um, who that that appeared in the in the independent publication. It was it was then known as Sloan.ru, and has since been renamed as Republic. And it's a uh, it's called White House and Television: Who Invented Donald Trump? Um, and this this came out in October 2016, and you know he tries to take an objective look at Trump's economic platform, and he says it more or less you know is pretty as a boilerplate of the Republican Party lowering taxes, reducing government, supporting business and investment, um, et cetera. But, um, but on the other hand, Gatsov perceives how the American media, particularly, and he particularly identifies Fox News, is uh, making Trump into, into this gigantic figure that, that dominates uh, the American media. And so you know, he talks about Don Donald Trump co-opting the media and, and selling Americans on the idea of a corrupt Washington that must be destroyed, um, and and he even you know Donald Trump even got the got the media to to devote airtime and and uh, and and press uh, you know press inches to to the idea of rigged elections. I mean, when's when's the last time a, an American uh, presidential candidate or political candidate talked about the the possibility of, of voter fraud in in America? Yeah, you know, so these out of left field topics that uh, that that Trump was spouting, you know, were, were picked up by the media and actually uh, taken seriously. And the Russian media picked up on on this too, you know, the idea of rigged elections. And um, of course, they couldn't take the idea of of it too seriously, because that would have uh, that would have begged the question of well, how how about Russian rigged elections? <laughs> but uh, but the, but the fact that this became a, a, a topic in the American media space is uh, is something remarkable. So that's definitely an, an article that stands out. And once the um, jumping ahead a little bit to uh, once the election happens, there's an article that we just uh, couldn't resist putting in. It's from a, a right wing newspaper called Zaftra, um, which the um, the uh, the weekly uh, Russian digest um, doesn't have that in its usual stable of publications. But uh, but there was such um, there was such an eloquent, uh, almost euphoric reaction to uh, to the election that talk, talks about the, the great generation of America, the lads in crew cuts who sat behind the wheels of flying fortresses, bombing Nazi breeding grounds, the, you know, the America of the Kennedys, the America of Neil Armstrong, um, you know, talking about Trump, Trump bringing this back and, uh, and, and bringing it to a global level too. History taking a deep breath, you know, reinvigorating the, the magma of, uh, of, of, of world politics, um, getting, getting Russia out of its uh, straitjacket it's it's a really amazing article that uh, that just that just is is so sweeping in its scope, and it's um in terms of the in terms of the global repercussions of of Trump as president, it's certainly not unique in in that respect because uh, a a lot of the commentators in in this book talk about uh, what does this mean for Russia, both on on the good side and the bad side. And so yeah, how did how did they regard this victory? On the one hand, you know we, we're we're 
shown a lot here in, in the United States about Russia and celebrating, you know, people like, uh, you know, Vladimir Zhirinovsky being very excited. I guess this yes, article by a glass of champagne. Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess this article from Prokhanov in, in Zaftra. Uh, I think it's Prokhanov, right? Is that the... Yes, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is Prokhanov. Good, uh, good yeah, yes, you know, he's a, he's a classic figure as well in terms of the the kind of clownish, <laughs> I would say, uh, right of, of Russia. Um, so so what was the, the response to this victory, this unlikely victory? Because I also remember looking through, reading some of the articles in the book. I think there was one, I think, uh, from the Moscow Times that kind of surveyed a, a, a bunch of political commentators. And I don't think a single one predicted that Trump would win, just like I'm sure here too in the United States. So what was the reaction? Yeah, that that's true. Um, you know, there were some there were some people who hoped for it. There were some who who tried to analyze the possibility. But but really, yeah, when uh, when you look at those those articles in the Moscow Times, you know, most most of those people figured you know figured that Clinton would end up winning. And so there's some really interesting responses to um, to the de the U.S. democratic system. So, for example, Andrei Mavchan writes that this is the uh, this is the US middle class you know ex expressing its political will showing its rejection of, of socialist and bureaucratic trends um, he says uh, and a quote from that article is once again the American people have shown that American democracy is not just a figure of speech covering up the subtle machinations of obscure elites you know even though uh, to be honest a lot of the Russian uh, a lot of the Russian politicians you know feel that in their heart of hearts that the obscure elites really are controlling everything. Another commentator, Kirill Martinov, even though he sees Trump's victory as a, as a step backward toward conservatism, he also applauds the integrity of the U.S. democratic system. Um, and, and he um, writes for Novia Gazeta, if I remember correctly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, very, very leftist, muckraking uh, publication. Um, on the other hand, um, Mikhail Fishman, who is the ed editor-in-chief of Moscow Times, sees the defeat of democratic values. He says, he, he laments that the US political system has failed at its core. The bulwark of liberal democracy is sinking. And what, um, and what he means by that is not only that America has failed itself, but when he says bulwark of liberal democracy, the way I read that is that America is a bulwark for the entire world, you know, a, a, a democratic model. Um, and, and there's a whole you know, a whole set of pro of pro Western commentators who, um, you know, who are repeatedly looking toward America as an example of of human rights, civil society, open dialogue, competitive elections, and so what I think depresses Fishman the most in this article is what it means for Russia, because he because he sees uh, Trump's triumph as as validating Putin's authoritarian leadership. You know, look, they've they've got a Putin over there too. Um, that that's that's the implication. So his uh, his conclusion is the hope for change in Russia has just been buried in the voting booths of Florida, Michigan, and North Carolina, which is quite an quite an indictment. Uh, and and I I do have to say like I you know some of the people and the publications of course as you point out represent various strains and within the political spectrum of Russia and it seems that the more liberally minded ones like uh, Misha Fishman and and from Nova Gazeta. Um, it, you know, it reflects a, a certain Trump representing the end or the beginning of the end of liberal democracy. And then on the other hand, more conservatives either, you know, champion this idea 
as a vindication or at least see this as I would imagine for them, the ones that believe that American politics are kind of controlled by a small elite within the establishment, that this is quite a shock that that he's elected. Because I also remember in some of these articles, they were basically saying, like, there's no way the, the political elite in the United States is going to allow this man to become president. Yes, yes, that's true. And um, and it, it really shows you, um, you know, the whole the whole de- debate over Trump, both before and after the election. Uh, and you were, I think you were getting at this a minute ago, it helps us see the, um, the Russian political and ideological landscape more clearly too, you know, because you, um, you ask yourself, well, who's happy, <laughs> who's excited about the prospect of a Trump presidency and, you know, and who's skeptical, um, you know, who's, who's, ba- who's, who's taking a balanced view, who's, who's cautious, who's cautiously optimistic, and, uh, and who's, you know, who's in seventh heaven. It uh, it really tells you a lot about about where different commentators are and um, and where the uh, where the dividing lines are in the Russian press. The allegations of, of Russian interference in the election, I mean, they were coming out even a bit before Trump was elected, but they really started ramping up. Uh, a lot of investigation, uh, and and eventually, as part of a you know two congressional investigations and a Mueller investigation, looking into uh, Trump's ties to Russia and Russians. Um, and, and one of the things that really interests me is that how this, this whole Russia gate, for example, is being looked at from Russia. So what did, what did the Russian press make of Trump's so-called Russia ties and the, in, in these allegations of uh, Russian interference in the U.S. election? Well, when we, um, when we looked back at these articles and, and analyzed what was there, we divided the topic into, into two pieces. One was personal contacts. And as I mentioned earlier, um, we found that we had to fill in a couple gaps here about uh, particular contacts in the in the Trump team, you know, personal contacts, the connection between uh, Manafort and Yanukovych, uh, for example, and that that infamous meeting, which is uh, that you know that happened in June 2016 uh, between Trump Jr. and uh, and the lawyer uh, Natalia Veselnitska. Um, you know, so we had to. We had to go back and and fill in on those because because uh, not much was uh, was made of them at the time. Um, so that was so that was one part. You know who who talked to who and the General Flynn and Sergei Kislyak link also figured prominently here. And then there was the technological part. You know, there was the hackers. There was the there was the emails. There was the you know there was WikiLeaks and and all that story. When it comes to the first kind, you know the, the personal contacts. The Russian press, you know, both left-leaning and right-leaning are remarkably matter-of-fact. And I say remarkably because when you compare it to the reaction in the American press, oh my God, they were talking to the Russians, you know, before the election, they were promising this and promising that. Maybe you could say uh, Russian commentators are a little more savvy than, than the American press, or at least the American press thinks its readers are. But um, a commentator named uh, Vladimir Frolov, who at one time was, um, you're probably familiar with him because he, he used to be um, a Russian press at, attache to the embassy and had, had a lot of contacts with, uh, with America. And at one point in, in 2001, the FBI accused him of, of being a Russian spy um, and, and, and working for, um, working for the, uh, the SVR, you know, the, the Russian version of the CIA. And so he and so he was abruptly, you know, his his visits to the U.S. were abruptly terminated. 
and to read Frollo's material um, sometimes you can you can almost imagine him as as a spy or he's he's at least he at least is very familiar with how the Russian government works. That so, is true. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's why I follow him. That's why I read his stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because, he's, <laughs> because he's, he's quite candid. He's uh -huh. quite candid about that. And he's not, um, and he's not confined. He, he does publish a lot, you know, his more, his more candid stuff, you know, appears in, uh, in Republic these days, but he's, but he's certainly not a stranger to, uh, to other publications like his Vestia. We consider him, a, you know, a, a very reliable source. And his overall take on this is that there have always been these back channels of of diplomatic communication between Russia and America. You know, this is just American press hype. And since this is Frolov, you know, you you don't you don't have to suspect him of being a a, a pro Kremlin <laughs> operative. You know, he's he's just telling it like it is. And we and we did we did feel also that we had that we should um, that we should give both Kislyak and Vesinitska, uh, their day in court. And so we, we have a brief interview with Kislyak saying also that, uh, that, you know, that nothing, nothing on tour happened. We didn't discuss this, that, or the other thing. And Vesinitska, you know, swore up and down that she did not, she never promised any dirt on Hillary Clinton. She only came, you know, to New York because she wanted to discuss a case that she was trying to make against a, a a Western businessman named Bill Browder, in connection with the whole the whole Magnitsky Act of suppressing business between uh, between Russia and America, and sanctioning um, Russian politicians, and you know reading the paper just uh, just this week we find out that uh, that Vysnitsky was in fact telling the truth, <laughs> maybe not the whole, maybe not the whole truth, but, you know because it turns out that Emin Agalarov, that old friend, she or her team had. Had tapped him because you know because they they knew that they had an end to uh, to the Trump family, and uh, and so the it it seems that the pretext for making that meeting happen in the first place was was this uh, was this promised dirt. And you can just imagine you know Donald Trump Jr. rubbing his hands together and saying, "I love it." So what did what did the Russian press make of um, of Trump's Russia ties? Because you know in, to contrast it with or to to say how it's presented in the press here is that, you know, first off, everybody's an oligarch close to Putin. Um, and I think a lot of that is because, you know, a lot of Western American reporters don't really know the ins and outs of, you know, Russian elites and who is actually an important person and who isn't. So what did they, did you get any sense of how they looked at or even were cognizant of the, the inflation of some of these figures who are connected to Trump? in the American press. Do you have anybody in particular in mind? Like, well, Agalarov like, like, is... Like Pasco. Oh, yeah, like Agalarov. Yeah, like Agalarov yes. is a perfect example because, you know, you read every article in the press here is that he's a, you know, oligarch, you know, connected to Putin in some form or fashion. And, you know, that can mean a whole bunch of things. So, yeah, take him for an example. Or even Deripaska is another good one. Yeah, Deripaska is, is admittedly more, more closely connected to Putin but on the other hand, he's less directly connected to Trump. I mean, his 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 connection, such as it is, is only to Manafort, um, who is you know who who is soon fired as um, as Trump's campaign manager because because um, Trump's team got nervous about uh, about those ties. But Agalarov, yes, he is he is a rich, successful guy, but he's certainly uh, certainly not one of Putin's inner circle. So as as you as you say, there's this um, there's a a much more nuanced view 
of of uh, in terms of who's connected to Putin and uh, and who's not. And in general, the you know the Russian press doesn't really take seriously the idea that Trump's business interests or business connections uh, could have had anything to do with uh, with his success in the election. Ideologically, yes, you know, when the, the coverage before the election, there are a couple of commentators who, you know, uh, who have their ears to the ground in, uh, in Russia, and yet they intuit that, that there's, there's a whole bunch of powerful people who think that, that a Trump presidency would be good for, for Russia. But that's a, that's a political issue. That is not a, um, that's not an economic ties issue. And then when it comes, that when it comes to, uh, when it comes to hacking, you know, the sort of electronic slash computer slash media side of the picture, the January 2017 intelligence report uh, makes a big splash. And my, my colleague Jim's uh, favorite article in the whole book, he tells me is, is this article uh, in Izvestia called the five fake report. And the, uh, the column, the, the commentator Vladimir Brutter um, says that, that all the conclusions of the report are based on five fake premises. And those are, number one, that, that Russia is actively interfering in the American media space. He says, in point of fact, Russia is simply not present in the Russian media space. If you look at the figures of, you know, how many people view Russia Today uh, television channel in, in America. Um, fake premise number two, Russia's interference had an impact on the election outcome. So yes, even if they, the Putin government or individual Russians <coughs> tried to affect the outcome, uh, what, how much impact could that have had? Uh, fake premise number three, that there's a pro-Russian lobby that influenced the outcome. Brutier claims that there are no Russian lobbyists in the U.S., um, no, no pro-Russian nonprofits. And he says that pointedly because there are, of course, uh, pro-Western nonprofits that are, that are operating in Russia. Fake premise number four, um, there's a link between uh, the Russian media campaign, that is the, camp the Russian media's coverage and the number of votes cast for Trump. And fake premise number five is that the authors of the report uh, deliberately conflate Russia's intentions um, to sway the Western community with, um, with some results of Russian propaganda. So in other words, that, that even if Russia intended for the election to go uh, Putin's way, that doesn't mean that that their propaganda had any effect whatsoever. So there is a sense coming out of the Russian press among some quarters that uh, a, a Trump presidency would usher in better relations between Moscow and Washington. But as we now know, uh, things have actually worsened over the last year. So how does the Russian press make sense of U.S.-Russia relations since Trump became president? How do they understand, on the one hand, there was this hope, or at least a you know, hope that things would get better, but things have actually gotten worse? There's an interesting transition period that, that starts happening even before Trump's inauguration, you know, around, around the time that that intelligence report came out. Trump was already starting to make... Um, you know, was already starting to disavow, you know, any possible friendship with, with Russia, um, you know, to, to take the heat off of himself, um, because that, uh, because the, uh, the investigation was just beginning at that point. And there was some commentary in the Russian press that, that, uh, Trump really is still a friend of Russia. He's just trying to, um, he's just trying to appease the establishment. And, and for the, and for the first several months, 
there's uh, you can see that there are these efforts in the Russian press to latch onto Trump's efforts to uh, to pursue a, an independent policy, an in, at least indirectly Russia friendly policy. So, for example, his uh, his positions on uh, on NATO that NATO should pay its fair share and it shouldn't you know go beyond its mandate, etc. So, on the one hand, the Russian press is still trying to hold on to the idea that that Trump Trump is this maverick who's going to is going to shake up the the world order, and uh, and on the other hand, when when Trump does make an anti-Russian remark or institute an, an anti-Russian policy, uh, they they chalk it up to the idea he's now trapped in the web of the establishment. He's this sort of sympathetic everyman who can't really do what he wants because uh, the Washington establishment is is calling the shots. And so the um, there's an article in the I, I think it's the Strategic Culture Foundation uh, online journal, which is rather uh, pro Kremlin, which starts calling Trump weak and saying you know Trump doesn't actually call the shots, but that's different from saying that Trump is anti-Russian. That's that he wants to do good, but he can't because the the evil doers in control of him. Right. So there's this trajectory that that you that you can see. I mean, not to not to make too blanket a statement, but the. Um, uh, starting out with sympathy for Trump, then acknowledging that he's caught in the web, and then accusing him of being weak. But then, what what really tips the scale is the the stopping point that we chose. You know, more more or less arbitrarily. You know, we we really wanted to get out the book as as early as possible, and so we could. You know, we were thinking of doing the whole first year of of Trump's presidency, but uh, but we decided uh, just to stop at. Uh, pretty much day 200. And it was on day 194, uh, August 2nd, 2017, that uh, that Trump signed the uh, the CATSA bill, the Countering America's Adversaries Act, which had been overwhelmingly supported in Congress. And he, you know, he really, he really didn't have a choice but to sign it. And that was the, that was the sanctions bill that, um, that everybody in Russia had been fearing. And, uh, and once, once Trump signed that, then, um, then even the most optimistic um, commentators kind of kind of breathed a sigh of disappointment and said, "Ah, here we are, back in the Cold War. It's never going to end." You know, the, the the final section is is about this where we stand, where things stand now, or at least until you 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 stopped uh, putting materials in the book. And one of the persistent themes of those articles, I think, is an increased danger of, of mutual misunderstanding between the U.S. and Russia in light of Russiagate, in light of this investigation. How do you think, um, and here speaking generally about press coverage from Russia of America and American coverage of Russia, how do you think the press coverage from both sides helps or, or even could potentially even um, um, lighten well, I should say this. How do you think press coverage from both sides helps increase the tension between the two countries? Like what what role does this this commentary play in in, say, Russian politics in general? As a, a lot of people know, you know, who have who've paid any um, close attention to uh, to media in any country, it's um, the, the power of the media is a double edged sword. Um, so on, on the one hand, it can actually make known facts that would have been unknown. It can draw connections that wouldn't have been drawn. It can give voice to opinions that otherwise wouldn't be heard. But on the other hand, 
what the media chooses to pay attention to implicitly gives the the idea that hey this is important you know this this is something that we should pay attention to so their choice of coverage you know whether uh whether the events covered are portrayed positively or negatively just just the fact that attention is being paid to them you know gives added priority to them so the russian ties story in in the in the us media is a great example the fact that this this 20 minute meeting in the trump tower you know between uh trump trump junior and the agalados and a few other people you know which really didn't have any consequence in in the campaign when you look at it objectively the fact that for for weeks and months on end you would keep seeing it mentioned tells the american public that you know that this is this must be really serious interference if it's getting if it's getting this many articles um you know pub published in in the in every major city newspaper um and and similarly in the in the russian press sanctions 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 um you know, from from the very beginning of Trump's presidency, um, there's there's this question of sanctions. Is Trump going to approve new sanctions? Is he going to sign a sanctions act? Is he going to roll back the sanctions? Is he going to eliminate the sanctions? As I was saying before, there's a um, there's a narrative that you know that goes back decades of what um, of what Washington is is doing in the world and how it aspires to be the the global policeman. And, and punishes everybody in the world if they don't do what America wants to do. Yeah, so America as the punisher, this is a, this is a very persistent image in Russia. And, you know, and, so, and so the issue, the issue of sanctions says, even though they only affect a few dozen people in, uh, in Russia, the, the importance of them is, um, is sort of taken as a barometer of what Russian American diplomacy uh, looks like in general and where it's going. Uh, and speaking of diplomacy, uh, what one of uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Matt Larson, who also translates and edits for the Digest, an important thread that he traced was was this narrative of diplomatic warfare that uh, that actually started with the with the outgoing Obama administration in apparent retaliation for um, for the supposed Russia ties. Thirty five diplomats were um, uh, were were abruptly ejected from America. The lack of response on the part of Putin didn't get a whole lot of attention in the American press, but it did get a lot of attention in the Russian press. And there was this kind of, uh, you know, it's uh, it's like you know waiting for the next earthquake. Okay, you know what what's Putin going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Um, and so the the Russian press has um, you know is has paid very close attention to who's expelling what diplomats and and from where. Uh, when Putin finally does respond and not until seven months later, in uh, in July 2017, that makes a big splash, and so this this diplomatic war continues to be relevant, you know, even in very recent news, you know, with the, in connection with the um, uh, with the Salisbury poisoning case in in England, when that that sparked a new round of of diplomatic expulsions, and uh, and the Russian press has been only too quick to um, to connect the dots there. Where, where the American press maybe not so much. Um, so but but that's an important part of the narrative is is what's what's going on in this in this diplomatic tit for tat makes the Russian the, uh, the Russian press both pro-western and pro Kremlin uh, very nervous um, very nervous and you uh, and you probably you probably picked up on 
the article, I think this is another of the most important articles in the book um, called A Generation Raised on Meddling, because this, uh, this article by Alexander Gabuyev, uh, who's affiliated with the Carnegie uh, Moscow Center. The interesting point that, Ga that Gabuyev makes is, uh, I, think, I think it addresses your point really well on, on how, is, how is press coverage uh, actually um, sort of seeping upwards into, into diplomatic circles. Um, uh, because you know Gabuyev makes a persuasive case that uh, that there is there is so much hype in the press about uh, about about Russia ties um, and about hacking and espionage etc uh, between America and Russia that that even uh, people in the top diplomatic circles who are supposed to know better are starting to believe it and get nervous about it and and so what he, what he worries is that world changing diplomatic decisions are going to be made based on hearsay and uh, and press coverage what do you what do you hope readers uh, take from this text that you've compiled what do you want them what do you what do you want them to to walk away with well one of the main things is that you know the the, uh, the fact that I've had uh, that I've had trouble answering some questions about about generalizing what the Russian press is like um, is is because there there really is this uh, diversity of opinion, even in a government which from the outside looks repressive and authoritarian, and it looks almost like a one party uh, political system from the outside, and yet there are you know so many um, so many really good sharp writers who uh, who openly criticize and make fun of the Kremlin. Um, one I forgot to mention earlier is earlier is Yulia Latinina of uh, of Novia Gazeta. It is always a pleasure uh, to read her, um, and she doesn't always you know she doesn't always come out against Putin and doesn't always come out for Putin. Um, one of the, one of the remarkable things she does in this book is that she she points out that the <laughs> that the uh, the hackers Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear worked on a strictly Moscow government schedule. They, they, always, they always signed off at, at five o'clock Moscow time and right. then signed on again at nine o'clock the next morning. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, but at the same time, she, you know, she says, uh, you know, she, she says that it made absolutely no difference in the, in the American election campaign. So, um, uh, so I guess, you know, going back to your question, Number one, the, the diversity of opinions that that exist, and the and the humor that exists, and the the insightfulness uh, that that exists in the Russian press in general. You know, whether talking about Trump or or other issues. Another thing is to um, is to give a perspective on on the Russia ties in particular, which are you know, of course, as you said before, makes makes this book continue to be so timely. I hope that uh, that some readers will will read these. This perspective of it didn't make any difference. I hope that that they'll see beyond that that it's not just um, it's not just uh, following blindly the the pro Kremlin line, but that but that Russians who really know about politics and about how government and diplomacy works are able to take in in a way a more objective view than um, than than America does. Another thing I'd like people to see is. Uh, is how well some commentators um, have a sense of the American political system. They were, you know, they were clued in, um, you know, back in 2015 and 2016 about the Rust Belt 
and the blue collar versus white collar and the rural versus the urban, um, you know, these uh, and and the and the racial issue, these various divides that exist within American society, you know, maybe not the average Russian, but certainly the uh, the run of the mill uh, Russian journalist is is quite well aware of uh, of where these dividing lines lie, and um, and so it helps it helps hold us hold up a mirror uh, to ourselves uh, to remind us of how of how Russia views America, and then of course you know on the on on the downside, but I think there's still an upside to it, is to know more about about this narrative that that um, that goes on in Russian political discussions about what they see as as the repeated violations of international law and that 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 phrase is uh, is used so often in the russian press violations of international law going back to the 1990s to yugoslavia to kosovo to you know um to america you know, the, this 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 perception of america strong arming its way um getting agreement from the european union to to push its policies through um not waiting for a un resolution uh, for example, to uh, to invade Iraq, these these are still fresh wounds in in a way in the um, in Russian commentators' psyche, and and yes, you know to be reminded of this, you know in in a way perpetuates the the Cold War mentality. But on the other hand, it um, uh, I hope that it will help people to understand where you know where the other side is coming from, you know sort of like one one time friends or uh, or family members who. Who have a rift over something, to give them a chance to to say what their perception of it was. Oh, I didn't know you felt that way. You know, maybe 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 there will be some moment in, in some people's minds that oh, they, oh, they they really are you know are still, you know, they're still bothered about about Yugoslavia. You know, that was that was something that was just bound to happen anyway. There was an ethnic conflict there, and you know that that's that's the way it should have been. Well, right, you know, not everybody sees it that way. That was Lawrence Bogoslaw the director of the Translation Laboratory, a communication and consulting service that he co-founded in 1996. Since 2010, he's worked as an editor and translator at Eastview Information Services in Minneapolis. He also serves on the American Translators Association Certification Committee. He's the editor of Russians on Trump, Press Coverage and Commentary, published by Eastview. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Мама, я не зигую, мамочка, я не зигую.
Sí, sí.